Today's episode is sponsored by Ethnoanalytics. Struggling with your experience design strategy? Worrying about how best to implement your strategy to get buy-in? Trying to figure out how to align your customer experience and employee experience, as well as all your other experience channels? Do you have qualitative data collection and analysis needs? Contact me at GaryDavid at ethno-analytics.com or visit our website ethno-analytics.com to find out how to make integrated design and experience alignment possible. Now on with the show. Hi folks, welcome back to Experience by Design Podcast, where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Well, it's here folks, the holiday season. For those of you who are customers and those who are employees working with customers, buckle up. It's going to be another wild ride as we go through the holiday season together. For me at least, it always feels like a downward slide from Halloween to the new year. I hate to be the holiday downer, but just to be honest... Halloween was a chance to escape reality by pretending to be another character altogether, dressing up as your favorite costume, trying to compare costumes with other people, just having a good time. Or even living today through our kids, or through the children of others. If you have permission to live through the children of others, make sure you check first. I think I first fully understood the idea of categorizing and sorting by going through my bag of candy and putting it into different classification systems. You know, chocolate over here, you have the licorice over there, you have big candy, you have small candy, you throw in the fruit out after searching it for razor blades. However system you used, you had a chance to explore and categorize. Halloween is a high without even the sugar rush associated with it. But with all highs comes the letdown as daylight gets lessened and the darkness starts to prevail. Thanksgiving could be good or horrible depending on your family situation and the extent to which you have to be around them and maybe didn't want to be around them at all. For my family, we always had very large family gatherings on Thanksgiving with my extended family, cousins, aunts, uncles, during which time we were regularly treated to, among other things, my grandfather's perspectives on race relations, which you can imagine what that might entail. And also the inevitable Detroit Lions loss. I can still remember the Chicago Bears running back the overtime kickoff to the end zone and winning the game. There's a lot of horrible Detroit Lions memories if you are from Detroit. The food was great, especially the Arabic food my grandmother would make. But for for myself being an introvert, the emotional expenditure to be constantly engaged was, quite frankly, pretty exhausting. And it was always a relief to get away and get back home and escape. And I know for many of you this past Thanksgiving, you were dealing with the situation of how do you handle those political conversations at the Thanksgiving table, going back home, traveling back home, that whole experience of dealing with the holiday traffic, going back to a place that you fled from in the first place and having to put on that brave face while you are engaged in either passively listening without being too forthright with your own perspectives or just saying, you know what, I'm all in and just going full throttle, having political conversations at the Thanksgiving table. And and now you have the holiday season, the Christmas Hanukkah season, 
I could say that again. Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. The built-up expectations of hoping to get presents prompted by the steady onslaught by television ads when I was growing up, the JCPenney catalog and circling everything you wanted. The anticipation created by Santa's false promises. I mean, not all of them are false, but there are enough false promises to leave a scar. And again, the letdown of it all being over with the box apocalypse littering the room. Today is the stress of providing for my own kids and their requests, as, as voluminous as they are. Perhaps the worst part is wrestling with the feat of structural engineering that is the way these toys are secured to their packages. I can imagine the sadists that design these things and innovative ways you can use zip ties to affix an object to cardboard. And they really should supply you know, wire clippers with, with these boxes because there's nothing worse than the child's great enthusiasm for opening the present and you trying to take it out of the box and their faces starting to sag as they realize you're incapable of defeating cardboard and plastic. Then into the new year where the concept of fear of missing out must have been born. The hype was always greater than the experience itself. I thought everyone in the world was whooping it up but me. Not that I wanted to be in Times Square. That legitimately looked terrifying. I was recently in New York for a conference and saw the quote-unquote ball that drops. Quite frankly, I was overcome with a feeling of being let down by its size and lack of prominence. I know some of you can relate to that. Just a dinkly assemblage of light sitting on a building. And Times Square itself is horrible on a regular day. I can't imagine what it would be like in January when you are crushed by people surrounding you with no chance to escape. So even if you don't celebrate the holidays, the sheer ubiquity of it also makes an endurance test of fortitude and stamina. We're all in this together, regardless of your faith, affiliation, familial status, or geography. So happy holidays, I guess. We're in for another set of experiences. I hope you're able to gut it out, survive the new year, and set your sights on another trip around the sun. And speaking of escaping, on this week's episode of Experience by Design, we talked to Puzzlescape owner PJ Mann. Puzzlescape is an escape room located in Hudson, Massachusetts, which is close to where I live, and a place I recently had the chance to visit as a participant. To be honest, when I first heard the idea of an escape room, it didn't sound terribly inviting. The idea of being trapped in a room from which I and my compatriots would have to escape sounds vaguely like most of the times when I have to be home watching the kids with the 12th episode of iCarly or Fairly Odd Parents in a row being played. If an escape room was anything like that, I didn't want to be any part of it. I mean, I do that for free at home every day. Why would I need to pay money to be tortured further? And what would happen if we couldn't escape? Would we be sentenced to a life imprisoned in that room? If it meant never having to watch Fairly Odd Parents again, it would be more of an attractive proposition. How long would it take to get out? Was this a time thing? Where we'd be there for as long as it took, being laughed at and mocked by other teams? For how long would we be trapped? Would things be thrown at us while trying to escape? Is it like a haunted house where you have to traverse a series of rooms while being attacked with fake knives, chainsaws without chains, and overly dramatic zombies? Then we were invited by another couple to take part in an escape room in the nearby town of Hudson, which was Puzzlescape. 
And I have to admit, I was pretty impressed by the overall experience that was designed for us. It also got me to think about the escape room industry as a whole. A 2019 article in The Economist proclaimed that, quote, the escape room games industry is booming, end quote, but also with a warning about fire safety issues in some countries. The article goes on to state that, quote, in 2014, there were just 22 escape room venues in America. Now there are over 2,300 in that country alone. Britain has more than 600, probably more than 10,000 escape rooms around the world. Similarly, a Vox article talks about the big business of escape rooms. But why are they so popular in the first place? And why has their popularity grown so much over a short period of time? One theory presented in the article is that, quote, in a chaotic world, escape rooms make sense, end quote. Not only is it an escape from a room, but reality as well in this totally immersive experience. Rather than doing so in a virtual world of gaming, you are able to do so in a physical world that requires sociality. You have to work together with others. This is a team sport, with some teams precisely treating it as such. Red Bull, and who else but Red Bull, has an escape room world championship, for instance. As the business and pop culture awareness has grown, so is everything that goes along with this growing business and pop cultural success. There are escape room trade publications, blogs, research scholarship on escape rooms, movies about escape rooms, and yes, even this podcast about an escape room. Ultimately, quote, they sell an experience. And it's not just an experience for the patrons, but actually for the designers as well. In a 2018 industry report, owners list balancing the difficulty of the puzzles as one of the top challenges. This is just behind creating props and elements that won't be destroyed easily by the participants, presumably in part by intoxicated puzzle solvers. But taking on this challenge can be great fun allowing the Game Master to design experiences that ultimately provide an outlet for their own creativity. Also, Game Masters and staff provide an eye in the sky, shepherding players through difficult stages and providing hints when necessary. Our group did escape our room with less than 30 seconds to spare. We were told that this might have set a record for coming closest to having our time expire, but succeeding. And that's the important point, right? But what is success? For sure, it is partly getting out of the room, which is the primary point, but it's also losing yourself for an hour. No electronics, no diversions, complete focus, and having to share the company of others to work together to get the job done while having fun. And for sure, no iCarly and no Fairly Odd Parents. How did you come up with the idea of opening up a quote-unquote escape room, which I know is a problematized (laughs) topic or a title we can talk about, but how did you end up with this idea of wanting to open up this kind of business? Yeah, so first I was a a customer. You know, I I enjoyed escape room experiences um, when I would travel a lot for my quote-unquote real job. Um, So I do consulting for the pharmaceutical industry, and as a consultant, I, I end up traveling all over the place. And... Ironically, the first escape room that I ever did was in Paris, um, but then I did a bunch of ones in Wisconsin, Florida, uh, Virginia, and basically after doing, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 of these rooms, 
um, on in my travels, I, I kind of started kicking around the idea of, hey, this might be something that I could do as a as a fun little gig on the side. And uh, so one thing led to another, another, and and my wife now calls this my hobby job um, because I still have my real job. Um, but uh, yeah, just decided to to dabble in it and, and open an escape room. So how many how many escape rooms as a customer would you say you've actually gone to? Um, I'm probably close to a hundred now. A hundred. Um, I haven't I haven't gotten my uh, uh, that the actual milestone of a hundred. A lot of times, people when they hit a specific mile milestone, they they um, have an escape. So escape. instead of just a cake, it's an sure. S cake okay. uh, to celebrate reaching a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, or whatever. So I think I'm about ninety four, ninety five. I'd have to check my spreadsheet, but coming up on a hundred. So. And is there a certain kind of person that tends to like the escape room? Does it attract a certain kind of personality, or is it? I know it's for anybody, but what kind of people would you say, or are you that would you know wants to do ninety five, a hundred, or more? Yeah, I mean, certainly, um, I would say that the the people that I've seen enjoy things the most are are inquisitive. Um, they're um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that. Um, intellect or smartness is is a, a criteria, um, for lack of a better term. Um, we've seen people from all walks of life do phenomenally or do horribly um, in in performing in the rooms. Um, I, I'm actually good friends with uh, two couples. Uh, three out of the four of them are doctors, MD doctors, and they always joke whenever they come and do one of the rooms, they're like, we have so many degrees and we can't figure our way out of here. So um, so I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, that is necessarily the key to success, key to success. Um, but there is definitely, you know, for people that are, are enthusiasts that have done, you know, 40, 50, 60 plus rooms, um, you know, they, they tend to, um, they tend to have a team that they work with, um, you know, of whether it's, it's friend or cohorts, um, that they, that they work with and, uh, they, the, the best teams, you can tell that they have kind of worked out who's what role on the team. Um, by that, um, you know, there'll be a finder or a seeker. Um, they're the ones that are looking for things everywhere. And whenever they find, for example, there's one team that we've seen that's done all of our rooms. Whenever they find something with writing on it, the guy hands it to another person on the team and that person is in charge of analyzing whatever the clue is that's written and then kind of, okay, digesting it and then sharing it out with the team. And then you've got somebody else that's good with mechanical puzzles or, you know, something along those lines. So, um, you know, kind of diverting from the original question of kind of what, what, you know, type of people get into this, um, and talking more about kind of enthusiast teams, but really what people type, type of people get into, we see families, we see couples out on a date night, we see, um, you know, all different walks of life, um, really when it comes to the games. You know, there's so many questions. And one of the questions that comes to mind is, you know, given you have enthusiast teams who have a strategy and approach, and in some ways, I guess you're designing something, you know, I guess the question becomes, when you design these things, well, number one, do you design them? And number two, who are you? You know, how do you design for a certain target? Because you got people who are like when I came in the first time, we just kind of came in because we had, you know, some friends of ours said, "You want to go do it?" Yeah, sure. We didn't know what the hell we we're doing. Right, right, right. Versus people who have different roles. I mean, where's how do you create something that is challenging for those people who are, you know, who are, who are the experts, the enthusiasts, and yep. and challenge and not overwhelming for people who are just the newbies? Yeah. So. 
so first, you, you embed, embedded a question in there, you know, do I design them? So yes, I've designed all of the rooms that we have open, currently seven rooms open, and I've designed them all. Okay. Um, so you're like literally the game master. And, right, literally okay. built them all. Um, most of them, I would say I've built the majority of it myself. My team has helped out quite a bit, um, I would say, with maybe more, our more recent, like, last four rooms. Um, I've, I've added a number of folks to the team, and they've got quite a bit of experience in kind of the technology and the props and the building mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. Um, but early on, it was me, myself, and I, and, and wow. you know, my wife, my daughters, uh, my son would come and help. Um, it was kind of a family affair. So to your question of, of kind of how do you design for such a broad spectrum of experience and, and ability level. And one of the things that early on I kind of decided was core to my design approach is to make the rooms in general harder for the average customer. Um, and our average customer is not the enthusiast, is not the people that have done 100, 200, 300 rooms. They've, they've done... Um, less than 10 rooms, less than five rooms, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's their first time doing a room. So um, I generally design for that type of experience level and make it harder um, than what I would consider a, a traditional, you know, an easy room would be for that level. Um, and the way we modulate or control the success is through our cluing. Okay, mm-hmm. so for we we don't care about how many clues you use there are some escape rooms that are three clues and you're done um we don't go for that um we are all about whatever you want as a group will clue accordingly so if you want to be a group that is only only gets clues when they beg and plead and you know (laughs) demand clues great we'll do that if you want to be a group that um we kind of spoon feed you we don't really spoon feed people but we certainly you know have have groups that have no idea where to go and so we kind of nudge them along a little bit here hey focus right. on this hey share this information um, and then there are groups in between where um, you know sometimes if groups are not doing well instead of just giving them a clue we'll say hey do you want us to give you a clue so that kind of is a hint in and of itself that they might not be heading down the right path so right. Um, sometimes they'll refuse the hint and just take the knowledge that they were not doing what they were what they should be doing, right. um, you know, as far as the the next puzzle to solve or something like that. So I guess you know it's. Uh, sorry, before before you ask your next Please. question, the the other thing that I was thinking about is now that we have seven rooms, it does allow me to have kind of more stratification of difficulty. Level. Right. When we first opened, we were two rooms, um, um, and so it was it's it was harder to kind of have that low, medium, you know, easy, medium, hard type of stratification. Now that we've got seven rooms, um, and I was always, early on, I was very resistant to saying, this is our easiest room, this is our hardest room, because we only had two rooms at the outset, and they right. were both kind of middle of the road. Um, but now, like I said, we've got seven rooms, and I can say, yep, King Arthur's Quest is our easiest room, the speakeasy is our hardest room. Um, and I can tell you which ones are easier or harder in between, um, based on that, that again, stratification of, of the challenges. Yeah, yeah, I was I was noticing that because I think the room we did was the one... The 13th floor. 13th floor, yeah. right. And that was, you know, I can imagine that being, you know, kind of middle of the road Exactly, that's exactly. And that was one of our first two rooms. Okay. Um, so when we first opened, our first room was Watson's Revenge, our Sherlock Holmes room. And the second one was the 13th floor, which is kind of a conspiracy theory uh, bent to that room. Um, and those were, were designed to be about the same difficulty level, um, hard but not impossible. Um 
and uh, yeah, they're, they kind of are our middle of the road um, rooms. They're the King Arthur's Quest, like I said, is, is our easiest room, um, and then the next next level up, I would say, are our Watson's Revenge and the Thirteenth Floor. Um, I would imagine with the cluing part, just going back to that for a second, when you get people who are working here, do you have to train them on how to read people and how much cluing they want, or is it something that they just kind of know intuitively because they are familiar with the environment? How does so, that work out? So, um, absolutely, we, we try and train people to, to kind of read their customers, read the audience, um, and, and, and it is something that we... we you know, in an ideal situation, we are having a dialogue with people before they go in the room. Hey, how many rooms have you done? You know, is this your first experience to just kind of chat them up a little bit, but also to get an understanding of, of what their experience level is so that we can then, you know, stratify our cluing based on that. Um, but yeah, it's absolutely something that we try and train people on. And it's, it's you know, sometimes it's easy to, to read a group and understand where they are. Other times they're um, you know, they may say at the outset, yeah, we want, we want a, you know, a ton of clues or whatever like that. And you start sending them clues and they're like, no, we're good. We don't want anything. And, and sometimes the opposite is true. Um, so, but we do try and um, both A, engage and read the customer relative to um, that topic um, and also read them while they're, while they're in the room. Um, because what they say at the lobby is oftentimes very different than how they are in the room. I was joking with my wife who does... Uh couples counseling and marriage therapy, marriage counseling, that this might be a good opportunity for her to cross-promote, given that uh, I'm sure couples, you know, as, as you're watching at the at the monitor, seeing what goes on in the room, that there are times when people's uh, patients with one another might wear a little thin. Yeah, and, and while we certainly see that with couples, surprisingly, we see it more so with families. Oh. Um, family dynamics, <laughs> right, wrong, or indifferent, people, people forget that they're being watched. Um, and, and we've had some pretty tense family situations in the room, um, you know, where, where, you know, we're, we're kind of like, okay, you guys should not be here. You should be in family therapy somewhere. Um, because the way you're talking to each other, the way you're disrespecting each other, cursing at each other, you know, whatever, you know. Again, they forget that we're watching the room, um, and and you know it's the type of thing that oh my gosh, it's it's not really public, but you're behaving in a semi-public environment like this. I can only imagine what it's like at home behind closed doors. Yeah, um, so that's that's a little bit disturbing, but that's, true. That's well, you know, it's one of the things I do with the kind of research that I do is I might videotape people in workplaces to see how it is that they do their work. Yep, and and one of the questions students or people I consult with will ask me is, well, don't people act different? When they know they're being videotaped, and I go, maybe, maybe at first, right? But after a certain amount of time, the they forget and they get they into the groove. The patterns that they have, the dynamics that exist, will just take over, yep. and you will get that. And you're saying basically the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, back to the question about about couples specifically. Um, you know, I can I can I explicitly remember a handful of couple experiences early on that were fabulous. Um, that they were, you know, cute as can be couples, um, you know, the way they talked to each other, the way they interacted, the way they were having fun. Um, and, and then um, I also remember some that were, you know, uh, I wouldn't predict them as being, if I was a betting man, I wouldn't pet, put money on their relationship lasting very long. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is kind of an interesting dynamic, again, because... because while we're not in the room, we're certainly there and observing. 
Right. Um, and, and people seem to forget that sometimes because they get into the heat of it. You know, they get into the throes of the, you know, the, the adrenaline of the talk, the time running and, and, you know, what are they finding? What are they not finding and what's working and what's not working? And, um, you know, it's really interesting. One of the things that we, if, if I'm teaching experimental design in a research class or talking about human subject protections, when you use deception in research, there needs to be some kind of debrief um, or a debrief in a, ten, a strenuous situation or a uh, tense situation so that the people you're experimenting on uh, don't leave carrying the weight of that experience right. with them. Right. To me, it sounds like you almost need something like that here in some situations, like the debrief. And yep. Yeah. So, so we always. Um, wow. Let me rephrase that. We train people to offer that debrief and and give them the opportunity to to kind of decompress a little bit. Interesting. Um, you know, we depending on how busy things get and how quickly we have to reset and turn around a room, we may not have enough time to spend with people to, to really do that. Um, but in an ideal situation, yeah, we, we offer to debrief um, whether they've escaped or not, whether they've completed the mission or not, you know, hey, did you have any questions about the room? Did you, did you miss anything? Especially when you get to larger groups, um, you know, we've got somebody solving something over here, somebody solving something over here, they have no idea what's going on across the room. So, you know, with those larger groups, we want to make sure we pay attention to, hey, did you did you catch this? Did you, did you see this? And sharing that information, as well as kind of getting the feedback from them of, of, you know, where they were frustrated, where it was, you know, where things were working or not working, especially when we start, when we launch new rooms, obviously that's integral to, to getting that feedback and, and making adjustments on the room. Um, so it sounds like uh, a lot of organizations where people aren't sharing information across their different groups. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, and we do offer for, um, for our corporate clients, for, for team building events, um, and, and very few customers have actually taken us up on it, but we do offer like a structured analysis and a structured debrief. Oh, do you really? Um, yep. Huh. So, um, so my background, I, I was, like I said, now I'm a consultant uh, to the pharmaceutical industry, um, but I was uh, senior management within different operating companies at different pharmaceutical companies for 20, 25 years of my career. Okay. Um, so I, I've built you know, 50, 75 people teams and, and um, dealt with that, that kind of executive management, middle management kind of layers of challenges within the organization and the challenges of building a team um, of varied skill sets. Um, so like I said, I've, I personally have offered that to clients of corporate organizations to be able to kind of say, look, we can gauge how well people are communicating, how well they're sharing information. Um, you know, we see corporate groups come in here all the time and um, they don't always play nice in the sandbox together. Right. Um, and, and, you know, it's not that far of a leap to say, okay, if you're not playing well in a sandbox here, you're probably not back at the office either. Um, you know, and one of the things that we, that we, that we draw parallels for these people in the organization is to be able to say, okay, you were struggling with this puzzle for some period of time and you know, Sally over here had the piece of information that you needed, and then once you got it together, boom, you were able to advance and move on. That happens on projects all the time. All the time. Um, you know, you're trying to do your deliverables, whatever it might be, a, a document, a test, a script, whatever. Right. You've got your deliverables, and somebody's got a nugget of information that you need to advance your project, and they're not sharing it, or you're not, you don't know that they have the information. In the next cube over. Right, exactly, <laughs> right, exactly, all five feet away. Right. Um, you know, so, so we see that type of dynamic play out in these games that I'm sure 
are happening back at the office. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Without so. a doubt, you know, because I'm a sociologist, and so I, mean, I do consulting in similar ways as well, and, you know, to looking at group dynamics, right, and relationships, and role identity, and, yep. you know, trust, and all these things that we have in, quote-unquote, real life, you also are going to have right. in the escape room. And you, you, you probably can tell within, you know, maybe four minutes how this is going to play out yep. based upon the initial, how people are interacting yep. with one another. How they're talking to each other. You can tell if the boss is in the room. Um, they behave one way, and if the boss is not in the room, they're behaving another way. Um, you know, so it's it's uh, it, it's a very interesting dynamic. Um, and you can see people that are naturally good communicators. You can see people that um, are not, and and uh, you can see what happens as people get frustrated and their emotions come out. And yeah, I mean, it's 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 fun. <laughs> so what's your what's your like longer background? So I know you did work in as a you know in operations, but like college degree or education or things like that. Yep. So I my um, bachelor's is chemical engineering with a minor in biomedical engineering from Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. Okay. And then I got my master's in chemical engineering from Villanova, and then I have a uh, supply chain and operations um, management certificate from MIT. Um, okay. So so. And how does that go into when you're thinking about designing? Like, where, how do the your experiences of going to rooms, your educational background, your professional experience, your own personality, how do all those things come together to create the ideas and then create the environments in which people have to navigate? Yeah. So certainly, um, from an engineering background standpoint. So very little from a chemical engineering background because we don't do chemicals right. thing in the in That's these rooms. That's too bad. Uh, yeah, I know it could be some really good rooms, but that whole safety thing. Right. Um, no, but but more from an engineering thought process and troubleshooting that absolutely um, uh, comes into play with designing and, and building our rooms. Um, so you know approaches to um, kind of how puzzles interplay and interact with each other. Um, you know, uh, designing a room on paper before we build it and, and going from, you know, point A to point B to point C and kind of laying that out. A lot of that is kind of that engineering background. Um, so then the, the other aspect of it is more, um, whether it's the operations supply chain idea or more just the management experience that I've got, um, is building in those points within a room where you're forcing communication, you're forcing sharing of information. Um, there's there's one room where um, I don't want to divulge too much, Please, no. <laughs> especially since you've only done one of our rooms. Yeah, I know, I'm definitely um, coming back. But there's there's one room where um, there is a physical barrier between the two parts of a group for a period of time, oh, and and. Part of the information they need is on one side of the barrier. Part of the information is on the other side of the barrier. They need to share that information verbally, not physically, because they can't share it because of the barrier. But sharing that information verbally is critical to that, to that team's success. Wow. Um, and again, you know, good teams, um, not necessarily experienced escape room teams, you know, not necessarily enthusiasts, but good teams that communicate effectively. Don't struggle with that. Don't don't get hung up on that. They're sharing information right at the outset. Um, you know, even if it's almost unintentional, they're just kind of talking out loud about, oh, I found this lock. I found this book. I found this clue. I, you know, they're just kind of talking at, out loud. Mm -hmm. um, that type of information sharing and almost kind of brainstorming is critical. Um, so sorry, we kind of got off of my, wow. my, my deeper background, um, the kind of that where that engineering piece Sure. And the, the operations and management and, and 
not really psychology or sociology, but certainly group dynamics and, and interaction. Um, a lot of that is from my management experience in the industry. And then the last element of it is, in my mind, is really kind of almost theatrical right. um, of kind of how do you build the set, build the experience. And that is something that I personally have zero background in. Um, other than having a son that is a theater major in college and a daughter that is very active in theater. Um, so being exposed through them um, is how I've kind of gotten that exposure and experience. Yeah. Um, is, is um, you know, kind of how to, to think about things from a set design, um, from a prop and, and decor perspective to, a kind of, again, kind of create this immersive experience for them. It actually gives me an idea for a new room. It might be called Escape from My Family, My Extended Family. <laughs> I, I came to Boston to do that, so that was that was the way out. Yes, there you go. There you go. Escape, you know, escape from um, your family. Yeah, so we so we stay. We would stage a room like that around the Thanksgiving table or something like that, and yep. you know, and it, and you're forced to sit to the next to the uncle that drones on and gets always gets a little too tipsy. Yep, yeah, yeah. We could certainly build a Share, room like that, sharing his ideas. <laughs> right, about, exactly. About, 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 about society, the government, about and, the government. And, right? Exactly. All those you know, government, race, religion, the things you know. he's found on the internet. Right, exactly. His so French, how friend. do you escape that long lost uncle that always you know rubs you the wrong way? Could absolutely I be think. a good. Room Room design. So you said <laughs> seven rooms. I would imagine that being creative, having a creative mindset, how often do you turn the rooms over? Do you keep them for a long period of time? Or how much do you have like this, oh, I got this idea for a room. I really want to do it. But, you know, do I get rid of run room? How long does it take to build it up? I mean, all those factors. Yep. So, so we have not, with the exception of our, um, we've done the last two years, our holiday themed room. Um, so the first year was specifically Santa. Last year's was um, was Christmas, um, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and Festivus. Um, with the exception of those two rooms, we have not yet retired a room. Okay. Um, and the, the reason for that is because we've actually been expanding our space. Um, we originally had the space across the hall from where we are now. That's the original two spaces. Um, then we took over space down on the ground floor um, which has four rooms, well actually technically five rooms, four themes, five rooms. One of our rooms is a, is a, a competition room where it's two identical themes oh, wow. set to go head to head on the same room. So that's why it's one theme but two rooms. Um, so we took over that space, that's an additional four to five rooms. And then we took over this space that we're in here now, which is an additional room, our Alice in Wonderland room. So we're kind of at capacity now as far as expansion goes, we've got our seven rooms and they're all in our space. So now is when we start thinking about, okay, at what point do we retire our room? Right. Um, and and there certainly is not a shortage of um, ideas, um, but it's, it's A, transitioning those ideas into something that can work thematically, right. um, and B, having that idea be something that will be you know, of interest to the public. Um, you know, I don't want to be doing something so niche that it's going to get one customer and I'm going to love it and that customer is going to love it and then everybody else is going to be like, I don't want any part of that. So how do you feel that out? I mean, what kind, you know, you said you've traveled around, you know, you've done escape rooms in Paris and all over the country. Do they differ based on the cultural and regional environment or they, t they tend to be kind of, I won't say the same, but, you know, it's not like the Paris rooms or the Wisconsin room is like how to escape from cheese. 
Right. No. No. Like I mean, that. I mean, certainly there are um, regional differences within the rooms as far as the themes go. Um, for example, there's uh, there's a room up in Westford, um, so you know, 20 minutes north of us, that has a um, it's a, a Boston sports themed room. So it's you know plays up on the the Red Sox and the Patriots and mm-hmm. um, those types of things. Um, but that's not to say that that same room theme couldn't work someplace else in the country just with their local sports right. teams. Um, so so in that regard, um, I, I don't really see that much regional variability. What I do see. And, and again, it's not really regional. It's more, um, I'll say the level of theatricality of the rooms varies. Um, there okay. are some rooms that go for um, a, a tr- much more immersive experience. Um, there are some rooms that have um, in-room actors um, that, that are part of the story and you need to interact with them in order to glean information um, to be able to be successful in the room. Interesting. Um, which we have a couple of rooms that have that. We've dabbled with that a little bit. Um, you know, and there, there are some rooms that are, um, you know, very different from a design perspective. There was one, I'm actually not sure if it's still open in Boston, um, that it was, it was a half-hour room, but it was pitch black the entire time. Huh. So it was all based on what you're feeling and, and describing to others of, okay, I feel like this is a lock that has a key, you know, or something like that. And it's, it was, again, pitch black the entire time. Um, wow. So, you know, again, it's different types of experiences. And there are some people, that's one of the things that's been a challenge in deciding what types of rooms to do. Some people that are like, that sounds awesome. I would love to try that. And there are other people that are like, no, thank you. I don't want any part of that. Um, you know, so which is part of what led us to, for example, our one, I mentioned earlier, is our, our one scary room. It's a serial killer room. And, yeah. and it's, you know, there are people that want no part of it. And there are people that are absolutely signed me up. I love it. I'm a huge fan of serial killers and horror and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So. And then you got the couples who are like, one person said, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> because the other person really wanted to do it. Then they get in there and, and they're and, freaking out. Yeah, and, and that that is the only room on our website that has a disclaimer. Look, you acknowledge that this is a, our scary room. Wow. Um, you know, every other room doesn't have that type of disclaimer. Um, and whenever groups come in for that room, we always, you know, you guys realize this is our scary room. Uh, yeah, and then, you know, then a lot of times with a bigger group, there's one person like, "What? What are you talking?" You know, I didn't know this was a scary room. Um, so, um, so yeah, if, I, if my kids are misbehaving, that's the punishment I should give to them. Is <laughs> I will take you to the scary room. Right, over exactly. At the, uh, exactly. The serial killer will actually get you. Right. Um, one of the things we talked about when I first walked in was before we started recording, the the label, the branding of escape room, and how people. There are people who look at that and say, ah, I don't like that name. I mean, how did the name, how did the concept of name come about, if you know? And then what thoughts have you given to how do we brand this differently to make it sound less ominous for that kind of segment of population? Yep, yep. So uh, to be honest, as far as an origin story goes, I'm not really sure how that moniker got attached and sticks. Um, you know, the, the history of escape rooms, um, there's some debate as to where and how exactly they started. Um, the the, the first one in the U.S., um, I believe, was by a Japanese company called Scrap out in California. Um, and they may have been the first ones that have done, had done this um, globally. Um, there are also some rooms um, in Bu- Budapest where people thought that those were the first escape rooms. And it's, and it's kind of like a, an evolution of the, the, 
the industry is, okay, well, those escape rooms are nothing like the escape rooms of today. Um, so were they really, you know, the nascent beginnings of the org of the industry, or was it a, a one-off um, just to kind of point us in that direction? Um, there's, a, there's a company up here uh, down by um, Gillette Stadium called Five Wits um, that I had experienced... I want to say back in 2008 or 2009 when they were located near Fenway, um, that that they don't consider themselves an escape room, but they are kind of an immersive adventure experience. Um, so anyway, back to the question about you know escape rooms and that and that tag, um, you know it it really is unfortunate, and I think part of it is because the original designs were you literally needed to escape. You know the room was locked and you needed to figure out how to get out. Um, for many industries, not le excuse me, many reasons, not least of which is safety, purely safety. First of all, we don't design any of our rooms that way, and a lot of people in the industry don't design their rooms that way. Right. Um, where it's no longer an escape-based mission, it's a it's a mission-based mission. Um, you need to collect these three act items. You need to um, you know unsolve solve who the person was that committed the murder. Um, you know those types of things that. Uh, have, have evolved into corner of kind of more mission oriented instead right. of escape oriented. Um, you know, and unfortunately the moniker of escape rooms is, is kind of how we've been tagged in the industry. And, and that turns a lot of people off, you know, at the outset, some people are like escape, you know, panic. I don't want any part of that. And people are like, oh, I don't want to do that because I'm claustrophobic. I mean, some of our rooms are, twice as big as uh, a master bedroom. Or a New York they're, apartment. They're massively bigger <laughs> than a New York apartment, right. I mean, they're, they're massive. They're hundreds of square feet in, yeah. in our rooms. Um, you know, they're not, uh, they're, they're not a claustrophobic experience. So, yeah. and, and, and that whole, you know, I don't want to be locked in. I mean, none, zero of our rooms have a lock on the, not only do we not lock them, they don't even have a lock on the entry door. So at any point, if you're nervous, you're feeling claustrophobic, whatever, open the door and walk out. Yeah, I was, so I was surprised by that. I was expecting more claustrophobic when I first came. I walked in, I'm like, oh, this is really nice. Yeah. <laughs> this is a really nice room. Yeah, and the room you did, it's got a nice comfy couch in it. It's and, got a know. couch. And then there was like a, a separate thing I won't go into, but there was another thing, and there was another thing. And yeah. I was like, yeah. oh, there's yeah. space. To, we had four people. And, and the fun space thing, to move around. so I think without divulging too much of, of the room that you specifically did, is something that we try and divulge into all of our rooms. Um, so in your room, the one that you did, the 13th floor, you know, you get into this apartment type of a room, and there's a, there's the, the elevator that you came mm -hmm. in on, and then there's another door, you know, it, what, what people assume is the door to the next room or the exit door or something like right. that. Turns out it's just a closet. Right. You know? um, but there's another hidden door, and, and we try and build that into as many of our rooms as we can because that, that wow moment, that aha moment of, Holy crap! I didn't even know that was a door. Right. And and you know, so we try and build that type of wow moment in as much as we can. Um, but having said that, there's only so many ways you can hide a door. Right. <laughs> it was interesting because you look around any of the rooms. I would imagine in this room in particular. Again, I won't give any details. It's like anything could be a thing unless it's not. Right. Exactly. And that's like you know figuring out what's a thing and what's not a thing. If you get too in the weeds about everything's possibly a thing, then you're right. looking at everything and wasting right. too much time. And that's, and that's one of the challenges in kind of building and designing the rooms is, you know, I vehemently again, am against, you know, the, the red herrings in rooms where it's, it's deliberately designed as a time sink for the group. 
Um, and, and some people think that any piece of decor that is not used um, in a puzzle is a red herring. And it's like, no, I don't really consider that to be true because I've got to decorate the rooms. You know, I, I want to set the period, whether it's, you know, Victorian era, era for the um, Sherlock Holmes room, King Arthur, you know, medieval times, Wild West, you know, late right. 1800s, um, you know, Western U.S. Um, there are things in those rooms that are just decor. And, and sometimes it's, it's really fun and funny watching people overanalyze yeah. um, uh, these things, these pieces of things that are decor. And there are times where we have to say to people, look, that's just decor. I was, you know, I was Leave it alone. <laughs> there was a few books in my room and I was like leafing through every page and I thought, Am I, is it really going to be something on page like you know, 267 right, exactly. that I have to read on the fifth line in the third paragraph that right. that's going to be the thing? Right. Probably not. And, and <laughs> but what it is, though, to me is if that is the case... There will be another. There will be some signposting to get to you there. there. So there will be another clue that says, "Hey, check out this book in the third chapter," or you know right. something like that, and and that will get you there. The expectation that you know there's a dozen books in the room or a bookshelf full of books in the room, and you need to go through all of them. I mean, personally, I would kill the designer that did that. Right. <laughs> um, and you if mentioned that expectation is there. You mentioned the industry. Is there? I mean, I know there's a bunch of. You know, escape rooms. Is there an industry? Is there like a professional association? Is there a way everyone gets together? Is there a conference? There is not. There are some conferences. There is um, one in the UK. Um, I think it's going on right about now. Um, there's one in the Netherlands. There is one. Actually, I think there's two in the US. Um, so there, there is not a professional association, um, and that is something that we've kind of toyed with um, as as owners as the industry right um, you know because there are there are inherent challenges in this industry um, from a safety perspective from a zoning perspective from an insurance perspective interesting that, that we all face um, you know again you know these these people are like no, you can't lock anybody. We don't lock anybody in the room. You know, get over that. I lock um, my kids in their room all the time. I don't see. <laughs> what you do at home is up to you. I mean, I don't see what the problem is, you know. <laughs> we'll have to get you to sign a waiver before we lock your kids in the room. No. Um, you know, but it's those types of things that I think would be helpful from an industry, you know, professional association. Right. And, and not necessarily lobbying per se, but more just kind of recognition as an industry. Um, as well as, you know, kind of ensuring that we're kind of, policing ourselves and, and holding ourselves to those standards um, you know from a design perspective it's a, you know I was there's a lot of schools that might do like game design and this is a game design it's just a different kind of game design right. so then as a person who teaches at the university I start to think about well what kind of classes would one take to then be able to be in a position to engage in this kind of, it's almost like the Imagineers at Disney in some kinds of ways yes absolutely um, you know and, and um, you know, one of the, the challenges that I've had in in building this company um, within this kind of nascent industry is that, um, you know, there's not a lot of experience out there um, in, in this world. Um, so it's not like I can post a job on, on, on Indeed or Craigslist or Facebook or wherever um, and say, hey, I'm looking to hire a, a game master. I'm looking to hire a game designer. Right. I'm looking to hire somebody that's got... Um, you know, low voltage electronics experience because that's what all our controllers are on. Um, you know, it's it's those types of things. The experience isn't out there. So every employee that I've ever had, even if they've done escape rooms, 
They don't know how to run them. They don't know how to run ours. Um, they don't know um, the, the various aspects of being a game master. Um, and, and beyond just being a game master, there's that game design and game build um, construction element of it, um, as well as the theatrical experience. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, as far as academia goes, um, it's, it's a blend of all of that, as right. well as business, you know, side of things right. from running a business perspective. Um, you know, so it's... Um, it's a lot going on. A lot going on, a lot of challenges, that's for sure. And how do you see with technology, whether it be like virtual reality or even using portable handheld devices like your iPhone or, or you know, Samsung or whatever in the rooms, you know, I'm sure people are doing that. Like, how do you see like the boundaries of these experience, immersive experiences being pushed through technology and other kinds of um, technological devices? So, so there are absolutely, there are virtual reality escape rooms out there. There are rooms where, um, you're given an iPad, um, and that is your your cluing um, within the rooms. You'll receive clues on that. You can even um, scan the QR code within a room to be able to get a clue that's resident mm. or relevant to exactly what you're working on. Um, personally, I have stayed away from any of that because, to me, one of the primary purposes of escape rooms is to escape technology. Um, mm. It's to get you and your kids and your friends off of their phones for an hour to get people off of their iPads for an hour. You know, you can go um, binge Netflix or, or, you know, Amazon Prime or whatever when you get home. Um, but this is meant to be truly an interactive experience, not just with the set and the design and the story and the technology, but with each other. Um, so, you know, like I said, I've deliberately stayed away from those types of technolo technology approaches. Not to say that our rooms aren't high tech. No, they are. They are, but it's, there's, it's, the tech that is behind the scenes that is enabling all of this activity, it's not what you're interacting with as a customer. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, technology, as I tell my students, technology is a, can be a pen and a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. You know, it's any kind of tool that helps you accomplish some device, you know, right. that, well, that isn't created by itself. So right. You're fashioning this thing to right. accomplish something. It's, some it's a tool to accomplish another goal. Right. So everything in there is essentially, except for the stuff that's not, technology. Right. <laughs> right. 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 And you don't know what that is, and that's what part of what makes it you know, so fun. So one of the things I get from you is like you have there's like this this strong design ethos or guiding principle that you have that is kind of like your mark, your brand, your vision, where another designer, different ethos, is gonna yep. come up with a completely different kind of thing. Yep. And and that is absolutely the case and, and I think that's one of the things that is really cool about the industry. Yeah. Um, is that I can go to escape room A and they certain follow certain rules of thumb or design principles and I can go to escape room B and they're completely different. Um, and, and as a customer, I can choose which one I like and which one I prefer. Um, and, and that's one of the, one of the things that I try and do as a, as a designer, as a builder is hearing what people's reactions are um, and building on my own personal experience of going to these rooms and seeing what I like and what I don't like. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and there, there are some, from a design perspective, there are kind of some unwritten rules in the industry. Mm. Um, I actually have a blog post on our page about it. Um, but for example, um, things are only ever used once. Um, that's mm. not a completely hard and fast rule in the industry, um, but most escape rooms use that principle. So you will only use a code or a clue or a key once, once and done. Um, you know, and, and if, as far as I know, we haven't broken that rule yet. Um, but if and when we do, I'll, it's something that we have to 
you know, make sure our customers are aware of going to the room. Look, there is something that is used more than once in this room, just so you're aware. Right. Um, you know, because it's it is one of those kind of unwritten rules in the industry. Um, you know, there's a handful of those things that are out there that, um, you know, right and wrong or indifferent. The majority of the rooms have kind of evolved in this manner um, with these kind of design principles. I know that you have a partnership with one of your rooms, the Speakeasy. Yep. Across the Less street. Less than greater than. Yep. And you know. To what extent is there that, are you looking at those other opportunities like down the street is Medusa Brewery or, you know, I got a tattoo at Tees around the corner right, before, right. which I actually did get a tattoo at Tees <laughs> before. Um, you know, to what extent, you know, is this an, this place an opportunity to also brand and branch out by integrating those different places to bring their products in here then then also back out? Yep. So absolutely. You know, we look for those types of opportunities. Um, you know, it... it there are certainly challenges to that. Um, you know, one of the things we were sensitive to with the Speakeasy in our in our room, the Speakeasy less than greater than in our room called the Speakeasy is, you know, people are going to be coming in a little tipsy. Right. Um, there is that. You know, so, um, both from a ability to to think straight, think clearly, and frankly, not break my stuff. Um, I've heard about know, the that, table. That poses, poses a challenge. <laughs> there was a table broken in the 13th floor previously. It was a glass cover. Yep. There, well, you know, not there by us. Be, there used to be a glass <laughs> tabletop on that room. And uh, yep, that, that lasted two and a half years until a group decided, you know what? I'm going to flip the table up and over. Okay, there goes the glass cable top. <laughs> oh, so, um, but yeah, I mean, we do look for those types of opportunities for, for kind of cross-promotion, um, you know, with other um, businesses that, that fit. Um, the dinner and escape type of concept is is one of the, at least in my mind, most clear, obvious ways to do a partnership. Right. Um, especially because we've got Speakeasy across the street. We were able to build a room that was Speakeasy themed. That's awesome. So the story builds upon you start your dinner across the street and then you come over to the Speakeasy over here and you're actually starting with puzzles over at the Speakeasy. You know, we build that into the, the servers, um, the, the wait staff doing that with you um, to kind of plant the seeds and, and literally you need to solve that before your dinner's done or else you're not getting in the room, you know? Um, so there, there's, like I said, that's kind of a very, very, cool. very um, obvious or easy kind of juxtaposition. Um, you mentioned tease tattoos, I, you know, pr just off the top of my head, I, I'm struggling with seeing a, a connection. Um, if you don't get out, you get two. a tattoo. Loser. Right, or, or, or you know, yeah, <laughs> either you, you, you get a tattoo that somebody else picks. Right, there you um, go. So, I like that. Um, or you get a tattoo of Puzzlescape's logo. I like that. I was just thinking the same thing. We're on the same so, page there. Um, but it's it's the type of thing where, okay, well, what naturally goes to get together? Okay, so a lot of our customers are either uh, couples or groups of friends or families. They're looking to do to go out, have dinner, and do something, okay? So that dinner and escape type of concept was a natural marriage. Um, there, to my knowledge, there isn't a, a bunch of people that are looking to get a tattoo and then go to an escape room. Um, right. Not to say that there isn't other cross-branding or cross-promotional right. types of activities, but that's a bit of a stretch. Um, you know, similarly, like, you know, Joe's accountants or whatever down the street, okay? It's like there's not really a, a, a an opportunity there for that type of a cross-branding right. because... There's not really a crossover between those. So you go with a couple with a bunch of churches, and you know you have to escape, you know, 
the you know the, the you know hell right. by looking at Bible verses. See, there's yeah. there's a nice tie in there. That. And then we the next room is like you know ascension into into the afterlife. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just or or you know we can have escape purgatory. Escape purgatory, um, is, purgatory. Is, uh, is uh, you know one of the rooms you have to get out of there. If you to choose the wrong, if, if you solve the puzzle the wrong way, you choose the wrong door. You're <laughs> right, going the wrong. Exactly. See, we already right. got an idea. Yep. <laughs> that would absolutely work. Well, a few Excuse last me. questions. Um, there's a lot of uh, you know not English language speakers around here. Is there are there multilingual escape rooms in the area, or does it just tend to kind of focus in on primarily English as a as a native language speakers? So, um, so there there are some rooms that I would say are language agnostic okay. in the sense that they they don't have any written clues or written materials in the room. Um, I don't think any of ours are that way. Um, I, I'm not really sure because I'm a native English speaker. Me too. I've never had to look for, <laughs> uh, with the exception of my, my first experience, my first room that I ever did was in Paris. Paris right. um, so when I was there, I was looking for a bilingual room because I don't speak French, um, you know, being able to be able to do a room in English. Um, you know, so in that sense, the market is there um, in, in regions that get a lot of, um, I would say, a lot of travelers, a lot of um, um, tourists, uh, that type of thing, which really Hudson is not that type of a destination. Right. Um, interestingly, though, when we have had people that have, have come in that that can speak English, but it may not be their native language, um, personally, I've, I've had that experience a few times where people are speaking Hebrew, people are speaking Portuguese, <laughs> people are speaking Spanish, and... So I'll I'll hop I'll call up Google Translate when I'm running the room and you know I can see even though they're not speaking English I can watch them and see where they're doing and I can tell where they're going with a certain puzzle and I can take the clue that I normally type in in English hop it in, pop it in Google Translate to have it come up in Hebrew or or Portuguese or whatever <laughs> and awesome. paste that into the the TV screen so that when I send the clues in it comes up in their native language and a lot of times you know groups get a great kick out of that because <laughs> they're like wow wait a minute hey <laughs> um, so but but. That's is kind of to the extent that we are able to go. Um, uh, having said that, we have had um, blind customers, and we've been able to um, uh, work with them to come up with um, audio versions of clues, so that they're not stuck with reading. Um, right. You know that they they okay. When you get to this point, you would normally be reading this. Boom! We'll, we'll trigger the audio clue that says what was on the piece of paper. Um, so there are mechanisms that we can kind of do as a, as a workaround for that. They'd be um, really good at the dark room with no light. Right, the dark room with no lights, they would be phenomenal at yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm right. serious. They'd just go in there and be like, okay, that's a that, that's a that, okay. Well, done. there is a prop that is, it's now just at our desk, but it used to be in one of our rooms um, that is this, this Braille box where it's got it has what the numbers are, one to 10 on the outside of it, so you can see, okay, this is a one, this is a two, but you have to reach inside this box and feel oh, no kidding. Those, um, those symbols and be able to say, based on what I'm feeling with my finger, oh, that's a three, oh, that's an eight, and you know, basically get a combination out of it. Um, and that's another one where people have said, and when we had that one blind person yeah. in the, that, that experience with the blind person in the room, they they took that they solved it in like three seconds. Yeah, they're like the Perkins team did really well. Right, the Perkins exactly. School for the Blind right. team they they yeah. nailed that one. Yeah, one last question. I, well, as a sociologist, I'm kind of curious. So many of your all your rooms are themed around certain, you know, socially recognizable topics. Are there any topics you're like, oh, this would be a really great room to design around, but it might be a little bit too socially sensitive, socially hot. Might be pushing the boundaries a little bit. What people would be willing to look at or see. 
So I, I personally haven't, I haven't felt the need to design a room that might be kind of you know pushing pushing mm-hmm. the envelope a little bit. Um, the biggest one that that gets me is intellectual property. Mm. Um, so trust me, people suggest it all the time, and there's nothing I would rather do than build a Harry Potter escape room. Yeah, I okay, think, but I that whole whole intellectual property <laughs> thing, you know, I don't want J.K. Rowling coming over and saying, uh, "Excuse me, we'll take all your money," um, you know, those types of things. And and there are there are people out there that don't respect that, um, you know. But so that's that's one area where I toe the line, you know, relative to intellectual property. All the things that I've built are either unique creations or public domain, um, you know. So. Um, there are also some escape rooms out there that that push the envelope as far as uh, taste or, or ethics go. Mm. Um, you know, there's one that's being kicked around on um, on uh, the, the escape room Facebook groups and mm-hmm. Slack channel and all that kind of stuff right now. That's that's uh, basically it's the Underground Railroad. Uh, oh dear! From, from the Civil War. Oh dear! And that's um, interesting. I think one of the the really tasteless parts, or, or maybe tasteless is not the right word, but um, certainly tone deaf is that the game is called Underground Railroad, but it does not respect what the Underground Railroad was in the context of the Civil War. Yeah, you know, they're talking about it being a way for um, Union officers in the South to be able to get back to the North. No, that's not what the Underground yeah, Railroad that's not, was. That's not what it um, was. So you know, that's in the case where there's an egregious. I, like I said, tone deafness of the designer and builder of that room. Um, you know, there are rooms that were made in Germany around Auschwitz. Uh, Bad idea. Yeah. Um, there was a work. there was an Anne Frank escape room for a oh. while. Um, and and again, you know, so there are those t- those rooms out there um, that that push the envelope, and there is a market for them. You know, there are people that would be thrilled to do those types of rooms. Um, that's fine. They can go to Germany or, or um, you know, wherever the Underground Railroad room was or whatever. Not here. You know, we're going to have, and I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, they're wholesome, you know, white bread, uh, you know, up, upstanding rooms, right. you know, but we don't want to be offensive. We don't want to be controversial. Um, at least I don't want to, right. um, you know, with any of our room designs. So taking room designs like Sherlock Holmes, like Alice in Wonderland, um, like King Arthur, you know, stories that are tried and true and, and generally non-offensive. Um, I guess somebody could be offended by them, but they haven't, they haven't come across, I haven't cross, come across them. They're not deliberately offensive. I think it's an important design question always is, am I, who am I designing this for? Am I designing it for others or for me? Right. And, you know, if I'm designing it for me, that's cool, but if I'm the only one who's going to, you know, get something out of it, right. then as a business, it doesn't make sense. But then also, right. if you're designing for people to enjoy, it makes no sense either. Right. Exactly. And I think a lot of designers might get even art, artists might get trapped into this is my art. Right. Well, it's cool. It's, yeah. There's there is that creative but, pride aspect of it, um, but it also needs to be um, appreciated by the customers that are paying right. for these rooms. Um, you know, eventually, right. you know, the, the the investment in people, customers building, or excuse me, utilizing the current rooms is what makes me able to design and build future rooms. Um, so right. if they don't like current rooms or they're offended by them and that 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 income stream disappears. Right. Guess what? I'm not building a next room. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. So. It's not going to be an eighth room. Right. Exactly. Or take over this beautiful building, which is amazing. <laughs> so, if people wanted to um, come here, how would they go about it? Tell us, like, how to contact the website and all of that. Yep. So, puzzlescapehudson.com. 
Um, and you can actually use Puzzle Escape or Puzzlescape without with only one E between the two. But PuzzlescapeHudson.com is is our website. Um, it has a, a booking page that shows all the availability for all of our rooms, um, and it also um, you know lists all the times available and whatnot. That's usually the easiest way, and we we joke about it with. Um, with when people are, are unable to book online, it's like, okay, well, you're not going to be able to escape then if you can't figure out how to book online. <laughs> but having said that, you can call <laughs> us, and especially if there's something weird like, you know, I want to book these two rooms back-to-back, but they're not available. Okay, well, let's figure out how we can shuffle the, the what's available when to get you a window that'll work. And um, open yeah, seven days a week? Six, seven days a week, yep. Um, oh. By far, our busiest days are Friday and Saturday when it comes to the, the public rooms. Um you know, but uh, and those those rooms tend to book up a couple of weeks in advance. Um, but you know, Sundays are pretty quiet. Um, weekdays are when we have a lot of our corporate groups, and, and those are really kind of all custom time slots. You know, I've got a group right. of fifty people that I want to bring in. Okay, well, let's figure out what time will work. Gotcha. Um, you know, and with our with our seven rooms, I have to double check the numbers, but I think we're at about sixty four people capacity. Um, at once that wow. we can handle through an escape room. When we first opened, we had the two rooms and it was a capacity of 18 people. So when we'd have a group that says, hey, we've got 35 people that want to come into your rooms, it was a little bit more challenging because we'd have to do them back to back and switch rooms and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't think we've had a customer yet um, that has taxed us to the point of having all eight of our rooms um, running at the same time. Well, it's, it's amazing stuff, and I'm glad we had a chance to chat about it because going through the room, I'm like, there has to be a bigger story here. <laughs> that the, what is this all about? Yeah. And, and it turns out, as with most things, especially this thing, there's a lot going on and there's a lot to appreciate from how these experiences are designed for the, you know, your customers. Yep. So I really appreciate it. Thanks so Absolutely. much. Yeah, thank you. I want to give a special thanks to PJ Mann from Puzzlescape in Hudson, Massachusetts for letting me behind the scenes of his passion and his business, and quite frankly, his family business. And I want to assure everybody that no secrets were shared with me during the taping of this, so don't even ask. And thanks to everybody who has subscribed to Experience by Design Podcast. You can do so by going to experiencexdesign, that's all one word, experiencexdesign.com, and just give us your email. You can also find past shows on our website there as well. Feel free to subscribe through Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just snatch our RSS feed from our website. If you have any suggestions for future podcasts, you can send them to feedback at experiencexdesign.com. If you want to sponsor an episode or even a month, you can get in touch with us there as well. If you really like our podcast, like what we're trying to do here, and want to donate, you can do so through our glow.fm page, which is linked from our website as well. All right, folks, this is it, the holiday season. We got this, right? At least I think we got this. I'll let you know how things are going next week. Take care. Take care.